Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 108, air date November 8, 2016. The purpose of my talk is really to share with you a story. And I hope, hopefully, the story is going to inspire people not only to innovate, but really reconsider what innovation really means and what it means to be a revolutionary. So I'm going to share with you my story. It starts actually in India. I grew up actually in Bombay, but I grew up in two worlds. Some Indians today typically only experience the world of the city, but I not only grew up in this world, but I also grew up in this world. How many people have been in villages? Anyone? Okay, it's around 20, 30 percent. But about 30 percent of my life was spent in these scenes of, an, of a very small South Indian village in deep South India. And if you've been to these villages, they have a very different quality than what you see in most of, you know, urban India. Both are absolutely valuable, but they have very different structures. And in this village, my grandmother was a poor village farmer, and so were my grandparents. They were uh, small farm rice paddy farmers, cotton, and they grew peanuts. And in fact, this is a picture of my grandmother. So you don't find, um, I don't know how many people have had grandmothers, but my grandmother had tattoos, um, and, but she was a shaman. In the Indian tradition, there's two systems of Indian medicine, some of you may know of, called Ayurveda and Siddha. How many people have heard of them? Most people, okay. So my grandmother could observe your face, and based on observing your face, there's a treatise in the Indian text called Samudrika Lakshanam, which is based on observing the face, and she could diagnose different ailments that were going in your organs. And based on that, she would uh, put together different massage, herbs, a variety of what we today call personalized medicine. And in this environment, I also grew up in another world. My grandmother taught me the great stories of Ram, you know, fighting Ravana, and the deep loyalty among, you know, Hanuman and Ram. So it was a, it was a very interesting environment I grew up in because I grew up with these epic stories. But in these epic stories, the heroes that I worshipped were not you know, probably some of the heroes that are popularly known in Indian history, but they were people like Bhagat Singh, Crazy Horse, these were revolutionaries, Che Guevara, and those were the heroes that I was brought up with as a child. So for me, uh, when my parents, these are actually pictures of my sister, myself, and my parents, when we emigrated to the United States, I had a much deeper sense of what, it, what India was. You see, I grew up you know, in India, we don't talk about the fact that there is, does exist a caste system, but I was what you would call the lower caste. And when my parents moved to India, I mean, to the United States, we moved to Patterson, New Jersey. If you've been to Patterson, Patterson's a poor city in the United States, predominantly African-American. And in about seven years, my parents moved to the wealthiest city in the United States because, as you know, most Indians care about education, and education was core. So whatever money they saved, they moved to the better public school systems. So this was me at about 14 years, 13, 14 years old. Now, what was interesting about this 14-year-old kid, he was very ambitious. And um, I actually started working in a medical school. Remember, I had this deep interest in medicine. So by the age of 14, I had completed all the high school math courses. My parents were afraid I was going to drop out. And I ended up uh, getting accepted to New York University. Um, which is one of the prestigious U.S. universities. In fact, I got accepted into their computer science program in a, where 40 students were accepted. I was the only Indian. And in that computer science program, I graduated number one, 
And in the summer of that, my mother introduced me a physicist who ran a medical college in Newark, New Jersey. Anyone heard of Newark, New Jersey? Yes, well, Newark is, again, predominantly 95% African-American. Very few people, white people, in fact, go there. In fact, I was joking with, I think, Brian Shaw, and he said, today even people don't go there. It's, uh, so in that medical school was a high-energy experimental physicist by the name of Les Michelson, and Les uh, offered me the chance to do medical research. So I don't know if you know, babies die in their sleep. It's called sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. So I was looking at baby sleep patterns, and this is a research project I wanted to do to find out if you could observe baby sleep patterns and predict the onset of, onset of an apnea. But before I was allowed to do that, they wanted to make sure I could program. Now remember, I had had seven different programming languages. In the 1970s, um, if you went into a typical office, there was a thing called the inter-office mail system. Not only that, but the secretary in an office was typically a woman, 99.99. In fact, I think 100% were women. And they were relegated to the typewriter on a, as you see in this picture here, the typical secretary had a typewriter. She had an inbox, an outbox, a drafts folder. Behind her, as you see in this picture, she also had folders. She had an address book, trash can. You get the idea? This was called a desktop an actual desktop. And a woman would put up a memo, which was typically in carbon pa uh, bond paper to, from, subject, CC, the body of a memo. Sometimes she had to put a carbon paper, which would make a carbon copy, CC, or sometimes a blind carbon copy. And that was put into an envelope, which was called the inter-office mail envelope. And this was then distributed, sometimes by foot, sometimes by vehicle, but sometimes by these pneumatic tubes. This was called the inner office mail system, and this is how businesses ran their paper-based communications in the 1970s. In fact, some offices still run it like this, to the office of prime ministers and presidents. So I was asked to convert this to the electronic form, and I wrote it in the Fortran programming language in less than 8K of memory. So you had to write all sorts of things to support this, and this was a full-blown electronic mail system, which no one had done before. And I call this system email. What you're seeing is, thank you. Now remember, this is a 14-year-old kid who did this. Think about that. It was not the military, which has been purported it was not the ARPANET, it wasn't MIT. It was a 14-year-old kid, an Indian kid, working in Newark, New Jersey. And he called it email because it wasn't an obvious term. In fact, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, they have the term starting in 1980 and in the Merriam-Webster in 1982. The reason I called it email was the Fortran programming language, all the variable names had to be in six characters. The operating system demanded five, so I only had five characters. So E-M-A-I-L, it wasn't that obvious. But email defined the inter-office mail system in electronic form, the email that we all use today. Now in 1978, there was no methods, now think about this, there was no method to protect software inventions. There was no legal laws. The only, the United States Supreme Court didn't even recognize software patents. However, there existed the 1976 uh, Copyright Act, 
in 1980, and now the Copyright Act only let you protect music and written work. The, in 1980, the, copy, the Copyright Act of 1976 was amended to become the Computer Software Act of 1980. And that Computer Software Act let you protect software inventions through copyright. Now, the way I, I filled this out was I ended up going to MIT, and uh, I was elected. By the way, this kid wasn't a nerd, by the way. I was actually an athlete, played. I could have been a professional baseball player. I ended up uh, becoming the student body leader at MIT. So I went to the president's home at MIT, and he said, Shiva, it's unfortunate the Supreme Court doesn't let you patent software, but you should copyright it. There was no lawyers, there was no mama and papa who could fund me, you had to write, there was no Google, there was no PDFs, you wrote away, you got this form, and you filled it out. So I think I was about seven, 16 or 17 at the time. The form came back, and there's the official copyright for email from the United States government recognizing me as the inventor of email. So there's no dispute here. You see, this kid invented the system, he called it email, and now the interesting thing occurs. So I came to MIT, and I'll come back to the story. This was in 1981. On the front page of MIT, they highlighted three students. One of them was me, and there was two other kids. Now the interesting thing is when you're brought up in an Indian household, you're taught to be humble, right? And I never thought much of this, frankly. You know, when you're a serious inventor or an artist, you never think about fame or fortune. You don't think about making money. You do it because you like it. And when you do things, it's, you look at the next work you do. So I never thought about this as something that I should promote myself. So this is 1981. Now, here are all the things that were saved in a suitcase. My mom, uh, she passed away three years ago, pulmonary fibrosis. About two months before she passed away, she had saved all this in a suitcase. And she had given it to me, and I had forgotten about this. This is now 35 years later. And a friend of mine looked at this, and he said, Shiva, you created email. Why haven't you talked about it? So he had a friend of his come in, and this was one of the first articles that ever came out talking about this after those early articles in 1980. Um, Dave's friend, Doug Ameth, who was a senior technology editor of Time magazine, spent about three weeks looking at all that material. And he couldn't believe it. And he wrote this article called The Man Who Invented Email. And this came out on November 11, uh, 2011, in, in Time magazine, the online edition. After this, I was looking at all this material, and I didn't want to keep it at home. I, I realized it belonged in a museum. So I offered it to MIT, had a museum. MIT looked at the materials and they said, Dr. Shiva, this doesn't really belong here. This belongs in something bigger. We would be stealing. It actually belongs in the Smithsonian. So on February 16th, the Smithsonian, which is the number one museum in the world, accepted these artifacts. And a young Washington Post reporter called Emmy Kalawale wrote this report. It says, V.A. Shiva honored as the inventor of email by Smithsonian. That day, thank you. That day should have been a great day for celebration. But what I'm going to share with you now is the real story. The invention of email was a revolution, but there's a deeper revolution that still needs to take place. And it starts on February 16th, 2012. When this story came out, you know, if you look at the, by the way, I'm a systems biologist, um, one of the many degrees I have from MIT. But when a virus, when a system thinks it's being attacked, it reacts, it has an immune system. 
And what you saw was immediately after this, after this happened, you saw a number of publications calling me imposter, liar, fraud, all sorts of horrible names. This is 2012, this is not 1968. And you had blogs like this say things like this, and I want you guys to read this, and I want you to think about this, what this is saying. That an Indian should be hanged and beaten. This is the United States of America. Unbelievable, isn't it? So, who was behind this? Well, you find out that when this occurred, I was appalled because this was the story of a 14-year-old boy who should be... It's not celebrating me, it's celebrating the spirit of innovation, which is what America is supposed to stand for. And you unpeel this and you find out there was a historical group, eminent quote-unquote historians, who had already written the story of email. They had said this company, a $37 billion defense company, you see, during those 35 years, Raytheon, one of the biggest defense companies in the world, in 2009, they decided to enter the cybersecurity market. So they bought a company called BBNN, which was an acoustics company. Now, they had a very nice mascot here, a guy with a beard, glasses, almost like he was pulled from a casting call. Now, Ray Tomlinson didn't invent email. He used the at symbol like we use Twitter to exchange messages between two computers had nothing to do with email. In those 35 years, they had built Raytheon up as the inventors of email. Why? Because Raytheon wanted to compete against Lockheed and General Dynamics. Now, if anyone who does branding, it's a beautiful website. It looks like they're the inventors of email. When that stuff went into the Smithsonian, it put a wrench into the history that these historians had written. The unfortunate thing for them was that the inventor of email was still alive. Typically, what happens is history is written by the victors, and there's no one else to challenge it. So what did we do? And I'll come back to that. Now, I had had some experience, fortunately, in looking at how to, how, how, as a, as a, in some ways as an entrepreneur, as an innovator, looking at how you fight large infrastructures who have systems. This is a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. Because MIT had investments in South Africa. So you're not only talking to an innovator, but you're talking to someone who's actually a revolutionary, believes that the purpose of existence is to fight for freedom. So this is a picture of me challenging the president of MIT, why MIT had investments in South Africa. This is 1986. And this is me fighting for one of my friends who had been thrown in jail by the Sri Lankan government. So, and this is me on my PhD day asking the US to get out of Iraq. Half of the people booed me, and the other half gave me a standing ovation. The point is you have to do what's right in life, and I believe that's what I was doing in this situation. So, Getting back to the invention of email, you see, so the unfortunate thing for those people who were attacking me, I wasn't just some kid or a nerd who'd built something. I actually had some political experience. So what did we do? We went back, and I had three MIT students who stayed in the MIT libraries for six months, and we went through everything. Because when you're attacked like this, you start thinking something's wrong with you. It attacks your self-worth, and you have to go deep down into yourself to believe in who you are. And what we found, this is why I believe there's a God, <laughs> we found this document written by this guy, David Crocker, who was attacking me. Everyone read this document? It says, at this time, this is, he's writing this in December 1977, no attempt is being made to emulate the full-scale interorganizational mail system. The fact that the system is intended for use in various organizational contexts 
and by users of different experience makes it almost impossible to build a system which, uh, which responds to all users' needs. He wrote that in December 1977. This is a guy of the ARPANET. Now, why did he write that? Because the military had no interest in helping office workers, civilian office workers, move from the computer keyboard to the terminal. You see, these guys were nerds. They were just trying to get a message passed from point A to point B for battlefield communications versus that 14-year-old kid who was actually trying to break an elitist barrier, help the secretary start using the computer. That's what email is. So we found this. We published it. Anyone heard of Noam Chomsky? So Chomsky, I had known as an advisor, Noam came out. They were trying to say uppercase email is different than lowercase email. Okay? The argument started becoming absurd. Chomsky came out and he said, look, I've read the material. Email, uppercase, lowercase, any case, was invented by a 14-year-old boy. Remember, so if you look on the internet, you'll see this controversy. You'll see people destroying my Wikipedia page. Amazing what can happen. All my achievements are removed from my Wikipedia page. Uh, people attack Washington Post. Every time we'd get an article, the major media would pull it down from this influence. Now, this is even more interesting. This is Walter Isaacson, who's a liberal writer. And this comes out last year. Isaacson knows this controversy is going on. And it's called The Innovators of the Digital Age. Now, let's look at this. I'm going to show you some pictures. Okay, these are the great innovators of the digital age. What's common about all these people? Anything common? Okay. And this is Vannevar Bush. He was a president of MIT in 1940. He started Raytheon. Isn't that interesting? And he praises him. And what's even more interesting is President Eisenhower, when he left office, he warned America that the destruction of innovation, the destruction of the American freedom would be the military-industrial complex, and Senator William Fulbright used that term. And what did he mean by that? It meant the triangle of the, of the military, on the one hand, the triangle of big universities, and the triangle of big industry. And he said that triangle allows these people in. You see, Isaacson's book is saying that in that triangle is where great innovation comes. And, the, and this kid cannot belong to that triangle. You see, when I was at MIT, I was on the front page of MIT three times. But when I said email was done outside of that triangle, it destroys the narrative because the narrative is all great innovations come out of war, that you have to kill and maim people, and then you get innovation. But the fact is, all great innovations, and that goes back to the history of India 5,000 years, does not come out of war. It comes out of actually solving civilian problems, solving day-to-day -day things. That kid was not solving a military problem. He was solving a civilian problem. How do you move the secretary from the typewriter to the terminal? You follow me? That's what this is about. Now, this story isn't that different than if you read this book called The Inside Job, a movie that came out, which talks about this eminent professor who wrote an article, beautifully written scholarly article that says that, you know, Iceland is a great economy to invest in. A few months later, the Icelandic economy falls, 2009, and that's when the entire crash took place. But that eminent scientist was never put in jail. Here's another example. For 50 years, we were told that smoking was good for you. In fact, this book came out 50 years later. Scientists and other people collaborated to get this kind of stuff out. 50 years later, we find out smoking is bad. 
But the history of innovation, the struggle of innovators doesn't only go back 50 years. You can look at Galileo. Galileo had actual evidence. The sun is the center of the solar system. He was crucified. And it was only in 1992 that the Catholic Church that they said they made a mistake. Everyone heard the term entrepreneur, right? Where does it come from? Well, most people will tell you it comes from French, 1852, entrepreneur. But there's another older term, antaprerana, okay, which is 1,000 year BC, 3,000 years ago, and it actually means driven by insight. And what does this say? If you look at the ancient teachings in Upanishads, it says you are what your deep driving desire is. As your desire is, so is your will. As your will is, so is your deed. As your deed is, so is your destiny. That's what it means to be an entrepreneur. Thank you.